Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Well, I, I think the hardest part is, is as you grow, um, you know, it, it's, it's really a challenge to do a lot of things really well. And so what you have to do is continually try and hire better people than to do things that, you know, better than you can. Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing, then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V. It's a great day to be alive and to invest in real estate. My name is Viku, and you're now listening to my show, The Real Estate Lab Podcast. Hey, welcome to today's episode. We are going to talk about pandemic. We are going to talk about multifamily. So this investor that I have on the show today, he has a different view than most of the other investors out there about how you should handle your property, your multifamily property during a pandemic and how to invest in small town like he does. My guest today, he is Jason Pirro. He was born and raised in Erie, Pennsylvania and attended college at a nearby Westminster. After college, Jason began his sales career in pharmaceutical and medical device sales. He started real estate in 2001. When he and his wife purchased the first duplex, he built a portfolio of real estate rental properties while working a career as medical sales representative. He was able to leave his job in 2012 as the portfolio grew to nearly 300 units. I'm sure you're going to have a blast listening to this episode. So let's get right to it. Here is Jason Pirro. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Lab Podcast. My name is Viku, and I'm excited to have Jason Pirro here with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, V. I'm, I'm happy to be here and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Now, Jason, um, I my first set of questions for you is about your background and your experience. But before I dive in, though, let me ask you this. How did you feel when LeBron left the Cavaliers? Which time? <laughs> well, <laughs> recently. <laughs> so uh, I am a huge Cavaliers fan. Um, and I will say that the first time LeBron left, uh, it caused real problems in my marriage. So <laughs> my wife and I would, uh, she then was a uh, Miami Heat fan and I was I was a heartbroken Cavs fan um so we we had endless debates but I'm a huge LeBron fan still um you know and when he came back to Cleveland it was it was you know uh I thought I thought it was one of the most amazing sports stories ever told and we had season tickets um the first LeBron era for a few years and we we had season tickets the second LeBron era and um you know look I mean every uh some of the best nights of my life were spent uh, spent at Quicken Loans Arena, um, courtesy of LeBron James's you know athletic you know <laughs> athletic prowess and it just um, so when he left I mean of course we were disappointed but I mean I think when it, when you look back at the history books LeBron will always be seen as a Cavalier even if he brings a championship to LA and even if he spends a few years in LA 
I mean, the, the bulk and the best part of his career is, was spent in Cleveland. He still has a home there. Um, you know, so I, I still, I, I'm not a Lakers fan. So apologies to any Lakers fans in the, in the building, but I'll still always root for LeBron and, and, um, and I'm one of those guys that will, uh, I, when they, with arguments, LeBron or Jordan, I'm mm-hmm. a Le- I'm a LeBron guy, man. So that's <laughs> so I'm much more positive about him leaving this time around. I guess to answer your question, and and I do have right. a LeBron shirt on underneath. If you <laughs> want to, <laughs> oh wow, okay. Yeah. So I, I, saw, I saw that you have a LeBron jersey. I know you have a LeBron yeah. shirt on right now. That's yeah, yeah. funny because I was just trying to ask this as an icebreaker and just happened to be <laughs> so funny. Now let's talk about your background a little bit, Jason, um, so that our audience can understand where you're coming from. What was it like growing up in, in your household? Sure. So uh, I grew up on a, um, or most of my childhood, I, I spent on a, a grape farm. So grew up in a small town outside of Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, the name of the town is Northeast, but it's the misleading. It's it's the northwestern part of Pennsylvania, but um, have an area that's known for grapes. So there's a lot of wineries in the area. And um, we have a Welch's plant, uh, in our, in our, the hometown I grew up in. Um, so, you know, grew up on a farm, um, parents weren't poor, but they weren't rich, you know, just kind of normal middle class. Um, but you know, great parents I have an awesome brother and awesome sister. Um, you know, I'm the oldest of three. So, you know, just did what normal high school kids do. You know, you join a swim team, you know, join a team, go to college and, uh, um, you know, came back to Erie after school and, uh, you know, the only thing I really knew is that I didn't want to work on the farm. So I did that when I was a kid, you know, <laughs> amongst other jobs, but it, it was really hard for not a lot of money. Um, you know, my parents never taught me much about, um, about money other than, you know, like go get a job and pay your bills and things like that. So uh, as I got out of school and started learning, um, you know, just learning about investing, learning about how to make money and invest money. Um, you know, I, I realized I doubled down on that idea that I, I really didn't want to, not that I was opposed to hard work, but I wanted to be compensated for the hard work and I wanted to be able to, you know, build some wealth over time and, and, and things like that. So, um, so it was, it was a great, you know, great childhood growing up. I love, you know, our area now, Erie, Pennsylvania, small tertiary market, you know, a little under 300,000 people in our county. And, uh, you know, so it's one of those places that's close enough to Cleveland that, you know, if you're a huge sports fan, we're like an hour and a half from Cleveland, hour and a half from Pittsburgh, hour mm-hmm. and a half from Buffalo. So, you know, it's not as though you're just tucked away far away from everything. We're like smack dab between three major metropolitan markets. So, um, so I, you know, really great area. It's great in the summertime. So as things start to loosen up with this coronavirus stuff, um, you know, people are starting to get back outside and really enjoy um, the better, better part of the year in Erie. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a great place to live. Now, you mentioned that you didn't learn a lot uh, from your parents in terms of uh, money and how to handle money. Yeah. Um, could you share with us what was your money mindset early on? Yeah. You know, so it was funny when I was in, um, you know, when I was young, like, like um, you know, grade school, um, I, I just, I wanted to make money. You know, I collected, you know, sports cards or I, I was a, still am a big, big music fan. So I'd want to get a record or a tape at the time. And, and so I would, you know, so I, I, you know, had a little route of mowing lawns and washing cars when I was, you know, nine, 10, 11 years old, got a little paper route. I caddied at a local golf course. Um, all these things you could do before you turn 16, which was legal working age, you know, then became a lifeguard and, and did various jobs throughout high school and college. Um, so, 
So my thing is I wanted a job to pay for the things I wanted to, <coughs> excuse me, the things that I wanted to do and like to do. So, um, so the mindset was just, you know, make money, you know, like how, how, like get a job, trade my time for money. And as, as I got into college, had a series of internships, never really knew what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but you know, I was, I was in public relations marketing. Um, so that was my major and had an internship. Um, so it would have been my junior year of, of, uh, college. It was just a few weeks, like we had a month break over Christmas and I worked at a marketing company and the, the VP of the company had said to me, Hey, you should really look at getting into sales. You know, most people that run companies all started in sales and I didn't really know what that meant, but I thought, well, okay, that's, you know, that seems like good advice. So then I started looking at like a sales position and I was going to, uh, get a job in financial sales, you know, being a financial advisor. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when I started, my eyes started opening to making money. You know, I knew I wanted to be a millionaire. I knew I wanted to make money, but you know, that only because I, I thought that's what you should do. You know, you should want to become a millionaire and for no so other you reason. You wanted to become a millionaire, but you didn't yeah. have a vehicle to right. take you there. And didn't, and didn't really have a why just other than I didn't have it and I wanted it. And you know, again, you're when you're 20, 22, 23 years old, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't regret not having that. I mean, it never, never learned the further reasons why until later on, but we, you know, um, in, in the financial planning business, as I was studying for my licenses and look, you know, I was helping out the financial advisors with, uh, scheduling appointments with their clients. And, um, I just, I remember it clear as day and I just reflect on it often, but, you know, I was scheduling, you know, one family for their meeting with, a, with an advisor and it was, like a doctor and a lawyer, um, or maybe it was two doctors. I can't remember what they both did, but both, both individuals worked, you know, they probably made six, $700,000 a year combined. And they, they had a net worth of, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. And, and obviously that's not true for every, you know, high income earner, but I said, wow, that, that seems low for it. They're making all this money. And, and the reason it hit me was because then I had a, a client that I scheduled a, their consultation and it was two school teachers. And, you know, they might've made a combined seventy five, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 a year. And they had a net worth in, in the millions. And I'm like, wow. how, is this, how is this even possible? And, and so, you know, the advisor said, well, you know, they have the bulk of their wealth is in rental property. And, and you know, and then they save and invest and they have their retirement plans. But I, I, that, that hit me with like rental property. Well, what's that? And, and then, you know, I was in tune to, you know, I started reading the, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The Millionaire Next Door, all of these personal finance books. And the common theme was that, you know, most wealthy people had real estate as part of their portfolio. So that kind of got me focused on real estate and said, well, I want to be a millionaire. And how am I going to mm-hmm. get there? Well, I'm going to buy property that I can, you know, keep buying property and, and creating cash flow. And I'll be, you know, save up my money and become a millionaire. I didn't, you know, at the time, again, I didn't really have a goal for why I wanted that. You know, the, the I mean, I do now, you know, the, the personal freedom and the ability to take care of my family and take care of friends and, and, you know, um, you know, give back to the community in, in bigger and better ways. And so there's, you know, there's much more tangible things, you know, to the, to the financial goals now, but at the time it was just super simple. Um, so I early on set on that path of, of buying real estate. So, um, my wife's the same age, but she came here from overseas. Um, so she was a year behind or a year or two behind in school. Um, and she was still in college at the time and I was working and I mm-hmm. said, you know, we're going to get married, you know, buy our first rental property. So we bought our first rental property uh, while she was in her senior year of college. You know, I was a few years out. 
And, and, um, you know, it was great. I'm like, wow, we bought this property with like the first, you know, I don't know, three, four or $5,000 we saved up. How much was it uh, back then? How, how, when, so when I understand you bought your first deal was a duplex, right? Yep. Yep. How much did you pay for it? It was like, it was like $32,000. And so, so, you know, the prices are really low in Erie. I mean, um, so, you know, comparing to other markets, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a really, really low price, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a total piece of junk. I mean, I still own it. Mm -hmm. It's actually a decent property and we've put money into it over the, over the years, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything like compared to the type of stuff we're buying now and, and dealing with now, but it, but it's, uh, you know, like I said, it had like 10% down and then had a little bit of closing costs, but, um, but you know, the rent was really low, you know, it was $350 or $375, you know, each. And, mm-hmm. and we went in and raised the rents and then, um, right away. And then over the years, you know, we've raised them obviously significantly, but at the time I thought how cool this pays for one of my student loans. Mm-hmm. So fast forward the next year, I'm still working my butt off. You know, my wife was getting done with school, looking for her jobs and we just, just kept saving. And then, you know, it was like the week before we got married, we bought another duplex in a four unit. And, and then it was like, you know, just trying to set up our financial future. So we spent those first early years just doing it the old fashioned way, saving up our own, well, probably spent the first decade saving up our own money, you know, using that as a down payment and, and never mm-hmm. took it, really never took an investor or even hard money until, you know, until we left our, our day jobs. And, you know, I, I worked as a medical device, surgical device sales rep. Um, my wife worked as a pharmaceutical rep for a few years, well, about eight years that she was in the business. And, you know, we just, we lived really cheap and sacrificed early on. So we were able to kind of walk away comfortably, um, you know, when, when we did. So that's kind of how, that's kind of how we got our start in the business. That's great. Now, your first deal you did, uh, I understand you did it a few weeks before 9-11 happened, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so could you like kind of... Um, Take us back and, and paint a picture for us. What was it like in the real estate market at, during that yeah. time, you know, when you got in and then yeah. everything stopped because of 9-11? Yeah. So I was just getting started and it was a two unit. So I, I um, you, you know, it really didn't hit us. I mean, we, you know, of course, the after effects of 9-11, um, you know, rippled through the entire world. And, you know, the, you know there was a recession, the economy took a hit. Um, but, you know, I, I found like, you know, in Erie, I saw tenants that were able to pay the rent. And at the end of the day, this is a very simple business. It's, you know, rent out your vacant space for more than your, what your bills are and you make the spread. And so, you know, I had enough rent coming in to pay my mortgage taxes, insurance, utilities, repairs, and leave me with enough to have a profit. And, and so we bought an 02, we bought an 03. Um, you know, there really wasn't a whole, like, whole lot of a slowdown. And, and that's not unique to Erie. That I think that's true for a lot of, tertiary markets because we saw that in 08 we're seeing that now that i mean sure there's a lot of things going on that are hit everybody in in the world or or you know even nationally with the you know it's just interest rates cap rates things like that but at the end of the day you know our tenants are paying their their rent um you know we're able to operate the business in an up market and a down market and places like erie pa you know and pick whatever tertiary and, and quite a few secondary markets they're not really hit by, you know, an economic downturn. You know, they weren't in this mega growth uh, phase. I mean, we talked about Cleveland earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the you know the sexiness of a Cleveland, Ohio, or an Erie, Pennsylvania, or Buffalo, New York is not in the name in itself. I mean, I um, I think the you know a lot of times 
people search for growth and that's that's great and i i honestly i'm probably um just risk averse in that sense because what happens is that just like murphy's law i don't want to be caught in the downturn in in a uh, atlanta or a nashville and and mm-hmm. so i i like the stability the predictability um that that's kind of how i sell our hometown and and people that invest with us in our deals now um is is the sexiness of this is the predictability so you know when we're doing distributions every quarter we're doing distributions during the middle of the pandemic nothing really changes um that that's the that's the appeal you know i i don't want to have to go through all the trouble of acquiring a deal doing the due diligence rolling it into our management company to only have to to worry about not being able to move rents and worrying about you know all these other factors that may come into play when you're when you're in a different metropolitan area so should we load up the bandwagon and come to Erie? <laughs> well, we might, well, maybe, you know, we might run out of property at some point, uh, but, but we could always, we could always build new. I would just, I would just make the case for, um, and again, every investor is different. I mean, some people are very savvy and very in tune to growth markets and, and they do a fantastic job at that. Um, you know, for me, I just, um, you know, I, I enjoy having that stability and predictability and, and, and it takes out a lot of the guesswork. So there's not really, having to, you know, we don't really have to time the market. We know that, you know, if we sell in 10 years or we sell in eight years or 15 years, that our growth is going to, going to be pretty linear and mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to have these huge ups and downs. Now, there's a ton of redevelopment going on in, in Erie PA as we speak right now, um, which is exciting. Um, but, you know, it, it's, I mean, the dollars, the same redevelopment dollars in, in, a, in a, like, again, I'd say like in Nashville or Atlanta, probably go a lot further. But but there is you know there is a lot of activity and a lot of um, a lot of building a lot of uh, economic development happening in in our area and I think a lot of you know the pandemic shown a lot of you know um, people that you know some of these like less populous areas um, are, are sort of becoming popular not that everybody's going to move from New York City to you know somewhere else but you, you saw when New York was shutting down a lot of New Yorkers fled to their vacation homes and you know, upstate New York or Connecticut, Vermont, other places like that. So some of these less pop- populous areas, um, you know, they just, I, I think they, they're less inclined to be affected by, by you know, national, um, you know, what's going on in the national economy. Yeah, that's, that's so true. And, you know, I also um, love investing in small town like, like that. And I do invest in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which I think is about yeah. the same um, yeah. as Erie. Uh, not a huge up and down. It's yep. always kind of like flat. And so the cash flow is great, but you cannot get any um, upswing in the, in the value and, and right. you know, cash out right. in that sense. Now, if you're listening, I'm talking to Jason Perro from Perro Real Estate. You can visit his website at www.perrorealestate.com. And that's P-R, I'm sorry, P-E-R-O. Now, Jason, it's obviously you are the expert when it comes to multifamily investing. Now, since we're talking about um, the subject of multifamily and the environment that we're in post COVID-19, as things are slowly opening up, uh, could you share with us the number one mistake that uh, caused a real estate investor to fail completely within the realm of multifamily investing? Yeah, I think a couple of things can come into play. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of times it's not just one thing. I think a lot of people up until, you know, the coronavirus um, situation came up, it seems like it was such a competitive market in a lot of areas that people were just overpaying for 
for deals. And everybody had it in their mind that, you know, they're the next, you know, great real estate developer. And, and there's a lot of smarter people than me in this business. But, um, you know, a lot of people were coming in and saying, hey, I'm going to push rents, I'm really going to drive value, and I'm going to push these rents up higher. And, and I think that, I mean, of course, value adds a strategy, it's not a mistake. But what I think the mistake is in a value add strategy is having too short of a timeline to do the CapEx and raise the rents and being, mm-hmm. too, and being too aggressive with their assumptions. So if you're going to do a deal and that deal only works, if you can push the rents to whatever your threshold is and, and, and things like that, I mean, I think that that's a big mistake because then, you know, what happens like, I mean, we, we can't predict the future. Nobody saw this coming, you know, I mean, we all knew, you know, the, the market was hot and everything, you know, the, the economy was maybe a little bloated, but nobody saw that hey, this coronavirus thing is going to happen and, 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 and cause the economy to go sideways. So I think that just being overly aggressive with assumptions, um, being overly aggressive with their projections. So I think, you know, for us, if we take a really conservative view on our deal, and, you know, when we look at where we want to push rents, you know, we don't want to be at the very top of the market. You know, we, we still want to be in the middle to upper part of the market. So searching for deals where the rent is, still has room to grow. Um, but we're not going to try and take it and be that, that tip of the spear. Um, you know, the same thing, you know, like this deal we're doing right now is 127 unit, um, portfolio in Erie and, and the rents were all, you know, 250 to 300 below market in our, in our pro forma, we were only pushing them $125. So we're still far below the competitive rent. Mm -hmm. And we, and we had said we were going to take two to three years to get there. So knowing that we could do it much sooner. And be heroes to our investors, but it's always that what if, you know, and I, I um, and, and no one ever wants to be boxed into a corner. So I think when we design our deals, we say, well, how do we do this in a conservative way? Will the deal work conservatively? And, and look, if we can overachieve that, and I mean, look, it's psychological, if, if, even if we're just teeing up our investors to be pleasantly surprised when we push the rents higher and, and done it faster than we said we were going to do. Of course, that makes us look good, but. You need to give you need to give yourself some room for pandemics and, and for other other crazy things that that could go wrong. So, I mean, you cannot plan for a pandemic, but like right. in your example, a hundred bucks and a quarter, right? I think in three years you can easily do fifty a year. No one would leave. Right, right. Especially when the competitive units are two to three hundred dollars more per month in rent. So at, at the end of the day, you've, we've given given them a chance to see how well we manage the property. Um, we ask for that rent increase. And then when they go and look, they say, gosh, I don't want to pay, you know, so much more per rent in month, so much per, uh, more per month in rent. Um, but they go and look at the competition. And if they're not getting any more in terms of amenities or value, but they're paying more rent, I mean, they're going to test the market and, and, and you might lose some people, but they're, you're going to realize they're, they're, they're not going to just be that mad to leave and go pay more money elsewhere, you know? So I think we take care of our people do a good job, put money into the property, but, but still not be the highest price in the market. Right. Now, what's another thing that you will do going forward to underwrite your deal? So it fits in the uh, conservative category. So, you know, we well now, you know, with, with agent, with agency debt, uh, you know, they're requiring certain reserves. Um, we've always, months. yeah, yeah. We've always had reserves in place. And I think that, um, you know, it, it's, I think I think multifamily investors need to understand the importance for reserves. If I put myself into the lenders at, at you know Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and 
you know, there were so many people on social media talking about forbearance and deferment, all this stuff before April even hit. You know, so the country starts shutting down in, in March and people are panicking. Now, if I'm a lender and I've lent you $5 million to buy a property and all of a sudden you're freaking out, what does that signal to me? You know, it signals that maybe you, you weren't as sophisticated as you, as you thought you were because these are big boy and big girl deals. You know, you have investor money coming into play. If you don't have reserves, you know, you, you have to do that now. I mean, not that you shouldn't have done it before, but that should be a real wake up call for a lot of people. Like my opinion, it's just my opinion. I, I, I could be wrong and that's okay. But I don't think anybody should have been talking about deferment, forbearance, any lender, anything until they actually saw how their numbers played out. And at the end of the day, you have a duty to, you know, you took a loan out to try and pay, you know, you have to pay your bills. So, you know, if you're the syndicator, you're the, you're the sponsor of the deal, you know, like for me, at least I would be out there mowing my own lawns and renting my own units before I asked my lender to, to give me forgiveness on a, you know, on a, uh, on a loan payment. Uh, I guess that's just the way I operate, but I, I don't think that because the signal then to your lender is that, well, they can't handle a little bit of a hiccup. I mean, you're one month into this thing. That's not the time to be asking for some help. I mean, the time to be would be like, hey, three, four months down the line and nobody's paid their rent. You know, that, that's what reserves are for is, is kind of break in case of emergency. So, so I think that that's probably a big mistake that a lot of people made is that they didn't have adequate reserves and they didn't plan because they just thought, you know, that, that apartments are these magic money trees. And look, I've been guilty of that thinking, you know, throughout my, throughout my career. And I certainly don't keep as much in reserves for my own personal portfolio as I would for a, a uh, syndication. But my personal portfolio is just that. If I, if I screw up, that's me and that's my own money. If it's a syndication, I mean, that, that's several, uh, sometimes dozens of investors that have entrusted you with their hard-earned money and, and you, know, you're, you have a responsibility to them. So I think that, um, I just think it's, that, that's one of the biggest mistakes that was made early on. And if, if people didn't have reserves, they really need to start planning their deals that they're going to have to. Um, and over time, you know, the, the restrictions from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will loosen up. And, and uh, you know, my understanding is that'll start to, the money will come back to, to the investors on a case-by-case -case basis. So it's really, really important to have your legal counsel, you know, work with the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac servicers to determine, um, you know, how and when that money can come back uh, to you as the borrower. And that could be, the, you know, that could be, you could sideline that for CapEx money. You know, when it comes back to you, you could, it could come back and, and just go back to the investors, however you want to, um, want to frame that. But, uh, it's not as though you, you want to have to leave that in the deal for the life, life of the deal. And they always ask for annual financial reporting and things like that. So they're going to know when they look at your balance sheet, they look at your PL every year, you know, if, if you've been successful and been, been able to deliver on your business plan. Yeah, I like what you said earlier about um, your own portfolio versus the one that you do with syndication yeah. when you have investors' money. Because at that point, you have a fiduciary to to produce. These people trust you with their money. Yeah, And so, of course, you have to be overly cautious with that money and do anything you can to protect their money. And and so, for the listener, if you are taking investor money, trust, trust that people know you are handling their money and, and they trust you enough to give you say 50 grand, hundred grand, however much that might be, you know, it's just, um, they trust you enough. You have to do a good job protecting it and, and you know, re, uh, give them a return on, on their money. 
Now, again, I'm talking to Jason Pirro from Pirro Real Estate. When you get a chance, make sure to check out his collaboration book called Crash and Learn. You can pick it up at links.realestatelab.live slash Jason. Now, let's switch gear a little bit. Um, when a beginner wanted to follow you and your footsteps in multifamily investing to achieve financial freedom, um, what's the first step he or she should take and define your definition of financial freedom? Sure. Um, well, I'll start with the, the second part of the question. So um, I think financial freedom uh, is the ability to have your capital uh, produce a return on invested money to live passively. That's true financial freedom. So if your investments, if the dividends from your investments can fund your life with very minimal effort, that's freedom. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, we still work for a living, you know, we run our business. Um, I would say I'm financially free, but I, I'm young enough that I enjoy and I enjoy what I do. Um, so I'm going to continue to do that and continue to try and create general generational wealth, try and create, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, additional jobs. You know, we, we do a great, you know, I think we do a good thing by providing quality employment for people in our area. Um, you know, we, we love the, love doing deals, love, you know, love beautifying properties. So we're going to continue to work, but being financially free is just making sure that you have, um, you know, that you've got enough money to live on and, and not have to worry about where your next meal is going to come from. Um, and, and the number is a lot less than what a lot of people would think. Um, you know, several, I mean, there's many tenants that live on much less money than, than a lot of we do and they, they still live and, and they're happy with their lives. But, you know, we all, as we go through life, sometimes our tastes change. Sometimes our, you know, uh, you know, instead of going on like a weekend camping trip, you're, you're going on a weekend to a, to a Caribbean Island. I mean, the pricing in that, varies or you decide you want to drive a nicer car um that's fine it just adds to your your financial liabilities you know there's there's nothing wrong with wanting nice things but understand that that number to to you know provide that financial freedom keeps keeps going up the, the more expensive your tastes uh <laughs> your tastes grow but you know if somebody's starting out you know wanted to do what myself or others have done i think you know one thing that we did early on was just Try and find mentors. Try and find people that have, um, you know, gone that path, you know, before before you that ha have done that, and and constantly seek out mentors. So, um, you know, the, the people that we bought our first several properties from, it was a, uh, a two brothers-in-law. Uh, they were married to to the sisters, and they were older. You know, the one was a retired IRS agent, the other one was a retired school teacher, and and you know, real estate was their sideline. That's who I learned from at first, and. And as I progressed a few years in, I, I you know, uh, had bought property from a guy that he, you know, real estate was his full-time thing. And, and so I, at that time, you know, and over, over time, I started learning the importance of mentors, um, you know, finding people that have gone where you want to go and you know, mimic their behavior, um, try and do what they do. And, and I, so I think that, you know, people need to be patient. So there's a lot of talk, you know, you can go to seminars and you can, go to courses and everybody wants to have thousands of units and, and, and that's exciting. And I think it's cool to see a lot of people go in, especially with syndications, they may say, well, I own a thousand units and they may own like a quarter of a percent of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's okay. But the, the thing is that that quarter percent or that fractional ownership only gives them a teeny little bit of cash flow. And so, you know, that 
that ca- like what I would focus on is is the cash flow, not the unit count. And so don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. You know, maybe it's wholesaling, maybe it's flipping houses, maybe it's buying some smaller rentals, all to build equity so that you can trade that equity into slice, you know, bigger ownership slices of larger deals that are much more easy to manage, much more easy to to hire third party management if you choose. Um, so I think just the thing is being patient. You know, it, I've been in this 19 years. I still have a lot to learn. Um, I've, I have a lot that I have learned and have a ton of fun with it. But those early years, it was like, man, I got to get to this many units. I got to get to this many units. And it was this constant feeling of inadequacy or, you know, wanting, just wanting to prove the world wrong or something like that. But I, I realized none of that was really important. I mean, it was when I found out what was important in life, everything else just kind of fit the pieces fit easier. So just be patient and find out what works for you. There's no like, I mean, you know, don't compare yourself to others. I mean, that, that, that comparison game can get, uh, can drive you nuts. And just because, you know, some guy started sooner than you and has 10 times as many real estate investments doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. All that matters is, you know, what your goals are on and what your own path is and, and what you're doing to, to better yourself every day. So Jason, what's the most profound lessons you've learned thus far? There's a, <laughs> there, there's a lot of lessons. I mean, I think the one, the one thing is, is, um, you know, just trying to keep an even keel, you know, don't get too high, don't get too low. Um, you know, I, I haven't really lost too much sleep during this pandemic, um, because of that, just always trying to come from a place where I'm, I'm centered and have that kind of inner, inner peace. Um, you know, the, the, the thing is, nobody's going to feel bad for you, uh, in a pandemic, you know, if you own a thousand units, you know, um, so I wouldn't be the guy. So for me, I'm not the guy out there beating my chest saying, Hey, look at, look at how great this is. And, and, you know, because it can all be, it can all, you know, it can all end in a flash, right? I mean, you never know what happens and, and, uh, you know, your building could burn down and, and you take the insurance money and have to start over. I mean, so just don't get too high. Don't get too low. Remember where you came from. Um, and just be humble because, you know, everybody's got a gift to gift to give and, and has something to share. And I just think that, you know, the, the best friendships that I have are the, are the guys that I, that I grew up with that, you know, none of them are, do what I do, but they're, they're kind of our, you know, my BS, you know, uh, BS meter where, you know, guys are going to tell you like it is not, not tell you anything to stroke your ego. They're going to, you know, they're, these are the people you grew up with and, and came up with. So I, I try to keep, you know, just remember where I came from and stay humble. And, and, um, and that's, you know, those are the things that keep me grounded and, and, um, and keep me sane. Now you're, you are obviously really successful throughout the years. You've been in this since 2001, you've been through multiple cycles. Um, what do you think is the perfect mindset a real estate investor needs to have at this point that would virtually guarantee his or her success, especially in a competitive market? Yeah. I think um, try to be radically open-minded and try and be um, at peace. And so this, the two things go hand in hand. And it sounds, I, I know it sounds like, like, you know, poop to somebody, whatever. But, but I mean, but the thing is, if you're open-minded, you know, just, just always have that idea that I could be wrong. You know, maybe I'm wrong. I know, you know, maybe there's something that, you know, because that if you're coming through life with that attitude, um, you know, then, then all new learning opportunities always, always come along. And, and I think trying to have that, that life of continual learning will 
always prepare you for what's next. And so like, like in a middle of a crisis, you know, um, comes opportunity and there'll be a lot of opportunity, um, good or bad. I mean, they, there was a report that I, I came out last week and I, I know I'll butcher the numbers, but it was something along the lines of, you know, the CMBS loans were projected to have something like 180 billion in defaults, like some ridiculously big number. Um, and if I'm wrong with those numbers, forgive me. I, I I don't have that in front of me, but I just, I I thought that was amazing. I said, my gosh, like there, it just shows that there were so many people that, that paid too high of a premium Mm -hmm. that, uh, weren't prepared for, uh, you know, for a downturn and, and and that's okay. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't be prepared and every market's different. I mean, there's certainly if you're in the middle of a value add play, trying to push rents, you know, in a market that maybe has higher than average job loss that might that might be a tough thing to do but i think that you know try and be creative um and just continually um uh, continually learn i give an example i have a um, young investor i work with i've sold him a bunch of property um over the past several years and he, he was kind of getting beat down with with one of the investments that he made and and um you know and just I, a mentor of mine and uh who's also a hard money lender uh had a relationship with, you know, with, with this kid, this kid that I've been mentoring mm-hmm. and selling property to. And, and I just, I saw him struggling and I, I said, Hey, you got to come to the office. You know, my friend Bud and I are going to meet with him. And we just, we sat there with all six feet apart with our masks on. And but I thought it was like super important because I, 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 you know, I'm like, dude, you're just, you know, you can't give up. Like, you, you know, there's there, you're in the middle of this thing. The only way you ever fail is by giving up. And he was a little bit distraught because he had a couple of refinances that were that didn't go through, and these refinances would have re- they represented a huge increase to his cash flow. And and he'll get there, you know. And I, I gifted him a book. Um, I had it on my shelf, and I, I in my office, and um, three feet from gold. And it's uh, oh uh, yeah, great, yeah, great. yeah, fantastic book. And and I mean, the point of it all was just that you know, like you're you you know, you only fail when you give up, and that you're always just three feet from gold. You're literally so many people give up right when they're on the cusp of success. And I think that that's the, the biggest thing because, you know, we all struggle with various things during, during tough times. And, and so it's not to sit here and say it's easy and, you know, but if, if you made a mistake, like don't give up, just keep pushing, keep pushing. And, and, you know, the only way it's a mistake is if you repeat it, you know, you can, you can have a lesson, you know, whatever you want to call it, learning experience, just don't repeat the same damn mistake over it. <laughs> okay, you know, learn from it, readjust. And that's how you grow, and that's how you can become, become better and bigger, and and keep moving faster in this business. So, let me ask you: Do you have like what's your biggest mis- uh, regret that you have? Boy, that's that's a tough one. And I know the easy things to say I, I never have regrets, but I'll, I'll try and I'll try and say like a big lesson I had because it took me um, it took me a while. I, this is something I really struggled with when I when I quit my day job. Um, you know, it, it kind of speaks to like goals and how having um, better defined goals, maybe even a better defined path is, uh, um, is important, you know? So I, I just worked so hard so long. I wanted to, you know, basically, you know, you know, just, you know, give the finger to the man, you know, I was leaving my day job. I was able to go on my own, but I wasn't prepared for what that looked like, you know, that really being an entrepreneur, like, you know, I knew what it was like to, excuse me, to, uh, to grow a business while I, had a day job. Um, but what was it then like to wake up every morning and, and have, 
people report to me. And, and so being comfortable with hiring, firing, leading a team of people, having people carry out your expectations. And, and so I left my day job in 2012. And I honestly could say I probably really wasn't that comfortable until about a year ago. So that would have been about six, seven years of like, just, you know, is it fear, uneasiness, just coming into my own, but, you know, being a leader, being comfortable with, um, you know, with firing people, you know, I used to, I used to stress out about firing people and, and I, um, didn't do the best job in the world of hiring people. I, I have a phenomenal team now and I'm super thrilled with it, but you know, I, um, but again, I came back to like seeking out mentors and I had some mentors in the real estate business. Um, uh, a friend who's become a mentor, uh, he's my uh, co-partner in my syndications and, and really learning from people that have done, you know, what, what I'm looking to do and, and, and really taking that advice to heart. So, so I guess the mistake was just, it wasn't even really a mistake because I think some of the best lessons are the ones you learn by, you know, hands on. And so, but it was a hard, you know, it was, it, you know, there's plenty of mistakes, like plenty of things with hiring, firing, buying certain property, just, just the whole nine yards. I probably lost, you know, so much money and in, in, in inefficiency. But um, I think a lot of the lessons we've learned over the period of time has keyed us up for, you know, the, the success that we'll achieve over the next several years. So, so I, I don't regret it because it's all, it's all lessons that have taken me along the path that I'm on right now. So now that you've kind of got over to hum with, you know, the getting comfortable with hiring, firing, running a company, being the entrepreneur, what's your biggest challenge right now? Well, I, I think the, you know, the biggest challenge, like for me is, is, um, you know, just being satisfied, you know, um, I have more than enough to, um, to feed my family for generations. I mean, cash flow real estate's where it's at. And every month I'm, we're paying down debt, cash flow improves. I mean, I've got a great, a great life, but I know that I get a charge out of creation and doing things as an entrepreneur. So, um, having that piece, you know, just being, just being comfortable. So that, that's something I struggle with. Um, but I also like just in the minutia of, of the day to day with the business, um, you know, I, I feel an obligation to, uh, to my employees, my investors, you know, um, partners, whatever to, to continue to grow the business. So, um, just struggle with, you know, day to day, like, you know, what's a smart move? What's, what's not like, how do we want to grow and, and where do we want to grow? Because at, at, you know, at some point, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we outgrow our own market. So you know, do we, do we build new or do we, do we go up the road to Cleveland or Buffalo or Pittsburgh? And, and start buying there. Um, so, th I mean, those are like quality life problems. You know, there's not like, there's, there's no complaint there, but that, and that's a quality problem to have. But those are the things that I've been sort of struggling with. They're like these, these questions of late, you know, that, that, uh, that, that I sort of think about, but none of them are anything that's like a, a problem problem. Right. Right. Correct. Yeah. Um, now let's, let me, Talk about your your book a little bit. Could you share with us some information about your book, um, Crash and Learn? Sure. So um, the the guy that put that project together, I'll give him a shout out. His name is David David Mamano, and I met him at a uh, there's a Darren Hardy Mastermind like entrepreneurial thing. It's called the High Performance Forum, and 
And for those that don't know, Darren Hardy was uh, the publisher of Success Magazine for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. He uh, wrote a book called The Compound Effect and uh, another book called The Entrepreneur, Entrepreneurial Roller Coaster. And so I met David uh, eight years ago. Uh, he's up the road in Rochester, New York. Um, you know, ha- uh, was in a little mastermind that he put together a few years back and really liked him, what he does. Uh, he came from the educational space. Um, and, and, you know, we hit it off and he called me up, uh, about a year ago and said, Hey, look, I'm, I'm putting a, doing a, putting a project together with, you know, a dozen or so entrepreneurs from different, you know, different fields of expertise and, you know, want to talk about, you know, like not, not anything to like people like, you know, beat their chest and talk about all, how awesome they are, but more to talk about like, Hey, here's a time where, you know, we almost crashed and lost it all. And, and what the lessons were that learned that how we got through those, those challenges. And so, so the book was a, you know, kind of a unique collaboration of, of um, a bunch of different people. And I was happy he asked me to be a part of it. And uh, um, it was funny because I've been working on my own book for, for a while now and, and uh, I can't seem to get that done, but, um, but I was able to, I was able to crank out the chapter for him pretty quickly. Uh, but it, but it just talks about the lessons. And I think that that's the thing all too often, you know, you're seeing these, uh, um, you know, and I don't know why it's in real estate and certain entrepreneurial things. Like I, I, uh, I tell like new people coming up, like, I don't give a crap what kind of car you drive. Like my, my buddies who are doctors and lawyers, like they're not putting their pictures on online with like their, their, their nice car. Like who cares? Right. Like, and, and so why is that a thing with some real estate guys? Like, and I'm not a hater, like I don't hate success. I have a really nice car. Uh, it's, it's, it's awesome, but I don't, I'm not going to put up a picture of it. Like, I think that just shows that like, I mean, just shows that I'm the idiot that's willing to pay all this money for a car when I could have bought something like a fraction of the price. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just think that like sometimes the, like to stay humble and to, to, to remember that, you know, like we all came from somewhere and, and this, this nice life is always handed to you. But, but I think, you know, if I can somehow be a lesson on the other side of this where, you know what, like I could care less if somebody has a private jet, if that's, that's their thing, that's cool, man. That, that's great. But just to me, it's always like bad taste to, show off the nice stuff because it only ever seems like it comes up in these entrepreneurial things. Like again, my, my buddies who are, you know, like if you're a doctor or a business owner, you know, they don't put up their, their pictures of their Corvettes or their beach home or their, their, their Rolex or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like they just, it's not a thing there. I mean, it is with some people, but not, it's not as pronounced as it is in our business. So um, I just like, I like nice stuff. I've got nice stuff, but you'll never find me. <laughs> Hopefully, if you ever find me bragging about that kind of stuff, I, then then I've lost my way. You know, I just don't. I just don't think it's good taste to put that kind of stuff out there. Yeah, you can brag about it if it's your passion. Like, you, right. if your passion is exotic cars, go for it. But I think, like in the real estate world, especially, um, I think uh, it's mentioned in the Millionaire Next Door. Like Ford F one fifty is like yeah. the most popular million uh, millionaire cars in the U.S. Yep. <laughs> And you know what? It's it's funny because um, you know I, I know again some of those. Like if you like nice cars, you like nice cars. It, that's fine. But you know, and, and go go join a forum on Facebook where you know everybody can like high five each other for their awesome cars. But yeah, there's. I mean, you know, I I know like hard docs who drive a Prius, right? And they make all this money. They don't care to brag about their car or anything else. So it's it's about like I think the material thing is like. And look, I didn't come from anything, and I and so like when I. Um, I bought my first Rolex. I thought it was the coolest thing ever until it got stolen. And, and then like, and then, so now I just wear a Fitbit, you know, <laughs> but, but I mean, like, it, it's like an empty achievement. I think at some, some point in time, you know, 
um, the the monetary things and the and the financial goals are um, you know they're empty. And so you have to look at that like like you know I think Jim Rohn said it, and it's there's several iterations of it. But don't become a millionaire for you know the money it gets you, but for what you become in the process. And so I think that you know that's that's what's more valuable is like who you become in the process. So I mean the thing is like the it's cool again it's it's cool to have nice stuff and and it's fun to you know do things with money and and buy things you know any whatever but i don't know that that ultimately buys you happiness so i think the thing is you know focus more on your happiness and, and kind of the value you provide for others and and then you know if you want nice stuff that that's fine but you know um it's it's like i know if like if i was putting out you know if i was trying to flex on facebook about my house or my car or a vacation i took or the time i was at a Cavs game and you know fourth row in the finals like that's great but what about my tenants that log on or my investors that log on and see you know like like is is, is that representation of me like who you know who they should be investing with or who they, who they should be running from and and the answer is different for everybody i'm not hating on on any of that um it's just it's not it's not it for me and so that that's kind of what i've run with and i'm way more comfortable not trying to be you know focused on the material stuff Right. Now, I want to circle back on something you said earlier. Um, so you went to Darren Hardy's mastermind, right? Yeah. How many other masterminds are you in and why do you think it's important to yeah. join one? So my very first mastermind, a buddy of mine locally uh, called me up and said, hey, you know, and I'd read, I'd, I'd read Think and Grow Rich, so I was familiar with the concept of a mastermind. So he called me up and another, another friend. Yeah, I'm going to put this group together. Let's do it. And, and, and um, that mastermind still excuse me, still exists to this day. And it's um, like five to six of us on any given time. Cause one of our buddies splits, spends most of his time like traveling with his family. You know, he's living that life right now, but we, we get together a few times a year and that, you know, it's unpaid. Like we just, you know, like we've, uh, we kind of tell each other our, our, you know, like deepest, darkest secrets, our work on our goals together. It's, it's just, you know, we, we did that and I was, I was hooked. And so then I, saw the Darren Hardy thing. It's called the high performance forum. So it's, it's definitely a mastermind feel, but it's not as um, like you have to pay to go to every one. Right. And it, I mean, the value is immense and I would highly recommend it. Um, and I'm probably going to go back. I hadn't been to one of those in eight years, but then I, um, you know, my friend David uh, that I met at that Darren Hardy thing had put on um, a mastermind of his own in Rochester. And it was only about two and a half hours up the road for me. And I figured, you know, what the heck? I'll, I'll I'll do it. It was like once a month, and I did it for about a year, and and it was cool. Like we would, you know, like uh, get together for dinner, and and I, I was able to. That kind of gave me a charge, like that entrepreneurial charge I needed, you know, to be around like-minded people that were struggling with similar things that we were struggling with. And and since then, you know, I I um a few years back, I was on Rod Cleef's podcast, and 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 anybody that listens, it was terrible. It was like one of my first podcasts, <laughs> and it was. <laughs> it was bad. I was nervous. And then, you know, we just, you know, it was okay. It was, and I'm super grateful because like, you know, I don't know, eight, nine months later, Rod called me up and said, Hey, I'm getting a group of people together. I'm thinking of starting this mastermind. And there was like a dozen of us. Well, there was like 15 or 16 of us in his living room. And a few of the people was, you know, his brother, his business partner, his wife, you know, and, and him. And there was like a dozen of us. And, and, um, I, I just, you know, I was looking for a mastermind, you know, I was, gosh, I need to, I need something. And, and that just like that gave me the creative juice and gave me the connections I wanted and, and craved and and um, so I've I've been very active with that. Um, I put together my own mastermind uh, for some local investors here in Erie, 
Um, but a business partner of mine, actually from Colorado, um, he's come in on a couple of our syndications. Um, he does a little bit of real estate coaching as well and, and has formed his own mastermind. So we're working on how do we collaborate and, and draw in some folks. Like, you know, for instance, if you said, hey, Jason, I'd really like to be part of your mastermind, but, you know, I, you know I'm not going to come to Erie, you know, 12 times a year or 10 times a year. Um, and and uh, same thing with him. If he had somebody from Erie, why, why would he come out to Colorado that, that much? So we figured out how do we collaborate. And we figured out, um, you, you know, some, some unique ways to kind of cross, cr- kind of cross pollinate each other's groups, you know, with, with I mean, with Zoom and, and the, the ability of technology right now to just kind of, you know, get connections from across the country. And, you know, we're not, not really doing it to make money. I mean, um, it, it, there's a charge to it, of course, but it's, I think the, the, the idea with a mastermind, um, you know, I, I enjoy participating in it and being like the, the, um, the least experienced guy in the room. And I, I enjoy, you know, like, like with the one we put together locally, um, you know, with people that are trying to get, you know, figure out where they're going, you know, and then and masterminding and working on new problems and, and, and new opportunities. And I think that, you know, the value that I've gotten out of my masterminds, I mean, um, you know, either you believe in, the, in this stuff or you don't. And some people that, you know, that, that are very data driven might say, well, you know, they, they don't believe in the law of attraction or they don't believe in the power of a mastermind. But all I know is like, you know, from my own experience, and I look at those others that have been successful, you know, the vast majority of people you look at that are successful entrepreneurs, successful business owners, um, that, uh, you know, have some, some level of, you know, mentors in their life, coaching, you know, uh, masterminding, they all, they all invest in some, you know, something like that for themselves. So, um, so I'm, I'm curious is your, uh, partner, Adam Adams or someone you, uh, someone in Rockcliffe's group? No, no, I, I, um, yeah, no, I know Adam Adams. He actually participates in, in Rod's, uh, mastermind and Adams, uh, Adams become a friend and I, I, uh, um, I, I value the relationship I've built with him, but, um, I, I'd met, uh, Jens Nielsen, who is a, Oh, uh, I met him at one of Rod's boot, boot camps and, and, um, we, um, guess I knew a guy that he knew, you know, we had a mutual connection and, um, you know, we, and it was interesting because this was, you know, last January. So a little, almost a year and a half ago. And, you know, he, um, he, he participated in a small role on the, on the GP side on a deal we, we did last spring. And then that, that relationship continued to build, you know, we've, we've become, um, you know, like we didn't force the relationship, you know, we didn't force the friendship. We just see how it evolved, you know, worked, you know, worked a couple of deals together and, uh, you know, we just have, just having a lot of fun with it. You know, we're not, uh, um, you know, it, it, there's, there's a lot of value that he brings to, uh, to my world and a lot of value that I, I hope I bring to his world. And, and, you know, we became, you know, genuine friends. And I think that's important in, in businesses. You got to like the people that you, that you're working with, or, you know, you don't want to dread their call, you know, because you're like, Oh, I don't like this guy. Like, you know, I, I mean, Jens and I just, whatever reason we, we bonded and, and, and hit it off. And, and that, you know, a lot of people we did, I mean, I bonded with Adam Adams, I guess maybe we just haven't figured out a way that, um, we would work together, you know, you know, on something, but, um, you, you know, you, uh, but, but you just have to let things evolve and, and, you know, don't, uh, you know, don't have to force anything. That's terrific. Now, Jason, you have been great. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, one last question before I let you go. What's the hardest part of doing what you do now that no one could understand? Huh. The hardest part. Well, I, I think the hardest part is, is as you grow, 
um, you know, it, it's, it's really a challenge to do a lot of things really well. And so what you have to do is continually try and hire better people than to do things that, you know, better than you can and, and letting go. And so, so probably the hardest part is just getting out of your own way and being, taking your ego out of the picture. And that, that, that was, that's hard, you know, because when you build a company, you think that your way is the best way and <laughs> you think that you can my do the best. But, right. But there's a lot of people that can, you know, there's a lot of talent out there and there's a lot of people that can do things better than, than you can. And, and so hire them, stay out of their way and, and really sort of stepping back into that CEO, president of the company, you know, kind of that visionary role being comfortable with that, being comfortable with letting people make decisions. And, and, you know, um, that that's hard, you know, but, but, you know, when you get work at that, it becomes easier and, and your business can grow so much further when you, when you are able to, to try and start learning that skill. That's terrific. I'm so thank you. Thankful for your time on the show, Jason. And for you listening to the show, to the Real Estate Lab podcast, you're the best. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, VQ. And I would like to invite you to check out carolrealestate.com and also the book Crash and Learn Lessons in Business. You can pick it up online on Amazon or links.realestatelab.live slash Jason. Now, Jason, do you have any parting words for our listener and also share with us how to connect with you after the show? Sure. Um, yeah, if anybody wants to connect with me, um, you know, they can connect with me on LinkedIn, um, you know, Facebook, uh, can shoot me an email if you want to put that in the show notes. Um, just Jason Perro at yahoo.com. I'm also happy to uh, jump on a strategy call. Uh, if anybody wants to, you know, um, book a 15, 20, 30 minute conversation, I'm always happy to just kind of talk through any, any challenges, you know, yeah. Um, so I'd be happy to jump on any, uh, uh, any calls. Um, but you know, parting words, just, just, you know, work on what's best for you. Don't, don't, uh, don't create your dream for someone else. So really figure out what's important to you and work on that. And, and don't worry about what others think. Awesome. Once again, thank you so much for your time on the show, Jason. Thank you. I had, a, it was a pleasure. That's the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a five stars rating and review on iTunes for the Real Estate Lab podcast. Until next time, have a prolific week.